Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 11th. It's mid-morning in California on the west coast of the United States. I hope you're all having good days. Sometimes, as, as, as regular listeners to the show know, we, we often, uh, I often introduce the show with a, a news piece and then hang that on, on, on a new book by an author. And, and sometimes it's hard to make this stuff up. Sometimes when you read the news, it's almost as if you're reading uh, a newspaper or a website uh, written by uh, Don DeLillo. Um, it's just astonishing, some of the news. One of the things that caught my attention over the last couple of days is the news that the tobacco giant, Philip Morris, uh, which is now based in um, Switzerland, uh, we all know that Philip Morris is intimately associated with Marlboro cigarettes, um, is bidding now for a, res a respiratory drug maker. Uh, lots of news about this. One of the headlines in CNN, they, they say rather naughtily, Marlboro owner wants to buy a company that makes asthma inhalers. Char health charities say it must be stopped. Surprise, surprise. Um, they're also in the business of acquiring more drug manufacturers, Philip Morris. Uh, they have apparently a beyond nicotine strategy. Surprise, surprise, given the marketing catastrophe of nicotine and cigarettes. Um, they're also buying a, a Michigan-based company that develops inhalable acid treatments. Um, as I said, Philip Morris is based, it's spun off uh, from the, the main cigarette manufacturer and they're now based in Switzerland. But the mother company of all this is now called Altria, um, uh, they're based on the east coast of the United States. And when you go to their website, as I just did, uh, their headline, no doubt uh, invented by brilliant marketers, says, moving beyond smoking from tobacco company to tobacco harm reduction company. It's almost as if arms manufacturers got into the business of, uh, of making aspirins or something. It's quite astonishing. Uh, uh, they are, according to the Altria website, moving beyond smoking in a new direction. Uh, my guest today on the show is a longtime observer, one of the one of the most critical and well-informed observers of Altria, Philip Morris, and the rest of the tobacco industry. She has a new book out, The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco, Jewel, and the Addiction of a New Generation. Uh, the book is in some ways about uh, a vaping company called Juul that uh, Altria uh, invested $35 billion in. But it's also a, a book about the, the marketing strategy, one might call it evil, dishonest, come up with lots of different words, of uh, a cigarette industry that 30 or 40 30 or 40 years ago recognized that it was on the wrong track. Um, too much from me, Lauren. Uh, you begin the book with um, an anecdote of a meeting uh, of then Philip Morris, now Altria. I think it was in uh, one of the Caribbean islands in which they recognized that they needed to take a profoundly new direction. 
tell me about that meeting and why you think it was so symbolic and important, even in today's world of Jewel. So that meeting was symbolic and important because this was a moment where the tobacco industry had been brought to its knees and was facing bankruptcy. Um, essentially, over the this was in 1998, and over the prior decade, the FDA had really come down hard on the tobacco industry and said that for the first time they wanted to bring them under regulation. The tobacco industry was paranoid that they were going to essentially be put out of business. At the same time, the state attorneys general had been suing the tobacco industry and had reached this massive settlement agreement, more than $200 billion settlement agreement over several decades. And it essentially said, in order, in a nutshell, it said, in order to have permission from society to exist, the tobacco industry needs to abide by a series of regulations. And that included not marketing to children. It included um, um, increasing taxes and paying a lot of money to the states to make up for, at least try to make up for, all of the harm that the industry had caused um, millions of people. So there was this moment where Philip Morris flew down hundreds of their employees and executives to Puerto Rico, and there there was this coming to Jesus moment where they said, okay, we're going to transform essentially into a new company. We're no longer going to deny that our product kills people. We're no longer going to deny that cigarettes are addictive, and we're just going to state the facts. That's what they said. And we need to essentially reorganize as a company from a cultural standpoint. So this was a meeting where they started talking about things like like permission to exist and social responsibility and all of these buzzwords that seemed like incredibly ironic coming from a tobacco company. So to I put it mildly ironic, Lauren, I, uh, as I said, this could have been uh, a story invented by Don DeLillo. It's, it's, it's eerily um, it's eerily prescient of a, of a surrealist narrative. I mean, it's absurd, isn't it? Well, this was, this was a company that was realized that its future was on the line and they needed to pivot. They had no other option. Either they were going to be put out of business or they needed to change. So that is, is of course the Silicon Valley word, which is often a euphemism for changing direction, absolutely recognizing that you've made a huge error and you need to go the other way. Um, perhaps we need a, a stronger word than pivot, don't we? Um, repent is a word that I use. Um, a religious word. Maybe we need more. Uh, uh, but but coming, coming back to this, moving beyond smoking from tobacco company to tobacco harm reduction company, um, as I said, your new book, The Devil's Playground, Big Tobacco, Jewel, and the Addiction of a New Generation, how central is or was the Jewel investment, a very significant amount of money, $35 billion, in this uh, so-called uh, new direction, uh, moving beyond smoking of, of big tobacco? this was really the key to their future. So just like they were undergoing this major transformation in the 1990s and trying to salvage their business and their future, in the 2010s and 15s, this new product, e-cigarettes, arrived on the market. And the tobacco industry realized that if they didn't get a piece of that market, they were going to be left out and, again, facing potential serious damage to their business. 
So when Juul invested, uh, excuse me, when Altria invested $12.8 billion into Juul, which it then was uh, valued at $38 billion, it was a critical play for Altria to try to get into this business and to try to retain essentially the market leader, which was Juul at the time. Is it a, I know it's easy always with 2020 hindsight to judge these things. Uh, but was this $35 billion investment in Juul, the leading e-cigarette manufacturer, I think it was from 20, uh, 2018, do you think it was a wise investment in, in, in economic terms, let alone uh, moral ones? No, it was a terrible investment. So again, they invested $12.8 billion when Juul was valued at $38 billion. And at the time, the company Altria was desperate, as I said, to get a foothold in the market. But it turned out that the timing couldn't have been worse. The e-cigarette companies had been coming under increasing pressure from the FDA. They, The FDA was threatening to remove these products from the market. And then there was this outbreak of this mysterious lung illness called E-Valley, which was related to vaping. And so all of this was happening. And it's honestly in one of those moments, looking at all these various business decisions that are made in our society, it, mar it remains to be in my opinion, one of the worst business decisions ever. It could... Although, uh, you know, from a moral point of view, who cares? Uh, in, in a way, uh, for, for, for Altria, for those people like myself, I think, who are really creeped out by, by this company and their dramatic change of direction, it, it's, it's, it's money that basically gets recycled, what, from smokers to uh, vapors? Yeah. And the important thing to remember is that there's a larger context here. So in the 1990s, as the cigarette companies realized that their future was jeopardized, they knew that they needed to come up with another product that wouldn't kill people, that wouldn't kill its customers. So they had started doing research into these harm reduction technologies, essentially a, a product that can deliver nicotine, which is the which is the substance that people are addicted to and which is why they continue smoking. And um, that can deliver that nicotine in a less harmful way, which means without the combustion of a traditional cigarette. So already there had been this move toward this harm reduction idea, which is why when Juul came along, it was viewed as the perfect kind of evolution of their product line, which involved, which consists solely of cigarettes and smokeless tobacco. Well, let's talk a little bit about... Uh... Jewel, because in a, in a peculiar way, it's as if Silicon Valley suddenly tried to reinvent the tobacco industry. A couple of very photogenic um, young founders, uh, what we call out here innovators, Adam Bowen and James Monsies. I think they were on the Time 100 list of top innovators. Both graduated from the heart of innovation, Stanford University. Uh, Stanford describe what they were doing as vice made nice. Here we have a photo of James Monsis at TechCrunch's famous Disrump show. Um, Bowen graduated from Pomona, the top liberal arts college on the West Coast, and then Stanford. To what extent um, is Joel a classic uh, Silicon Valley disruptive play of finding an industry that was clearly archaic and reinventing it. Well, I think in a way it was the platonic ideal of a Silicon Valley company. Here was a technology, here was a product, the cigarette, uh, which is essentially paper 
with shredded tobacco. You wrap it all together and you light it on fire and suck the smoke into your lungs to get a nice high or a little buzz at least. And so this is a product that hadn't been innovated in over a century. So as these two, as Adam and James are at Stanford, as you mentioned, the heart of innovation and where everything under the sun is being innovated. They were smoking cigarettes in the back outside of one of their classrooms and realized how idiotic it was, how archaic that they were still ingesting or inhaling rather burning paper and plant matter. So in a way, you can see that this is an area that's ripe for disruption. Not only that, but when you're in Silicon Valley, you not only look for areas that need to be disrupted, innovated, but you look for products and market categories that have huge numbers of customers. So when you look at that aspect, you see that there are 1 billion smokers in the world. That's 1 billion potential customers. If they could get even a fraction of those customers to change over or switch to their product, that's already an immense uh, uh, addressable uh, uh, an immense user base, essentially a customer base. So they have the, the lack of innovation in that industry, the cigarette, a gigantic market. Um, and so that was the, those were the two kind of mm. endpoints into this, into this industry for them. And it's of course not surprising then, given the classic Silicon Valley pitch of disrupting and seizing uh, multi-billion dollar markets that their investors include uh, major venture capitalist companies like Tiger Global and Fid Fidelity Investments, the giants in the field. Um, to what extent was their marketing and their whole uh, approach to, to raising money and growing the company the classic Silicon Valley shtick of getting big really fast, uh, to, to quote uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, move fast and break things? Again, it was critical for them. They realized that this was a hyper-competitive market that they needed to attack fast. And they also realized that in order to kind of sell investors on their product, that they needed to have a nicely uh, presented myth around their product. And just like every Silicon Valley entre entrepreneur has a story to tell or builds a narrative around their product, Adam and James did the same thing. And they had a very compelling narrative. Their narrative what was the cult, um, Lauren? We uh, recently had Maureen O'Farrell on the show, who has a wonderful new book out about WeWorks called The Cult of We. I once wrote a book called The Cult of the Amateur. What's the cult behind uh, Jewel? Well, it's the harm reduction cult, if you want to call it that. I, I, I shy away from that word a little bit, but because there are some serious... Um, potentials for the harm reduction community. So what you have to remember is that there are still 38 million Americans who continue to smoke combustible cigarettes. Also, cigarettes are the leading contributor to preventable death. They, 400,000, almost 400,000 people a year die of smoking-related disease. So it's a serious men, uh, public health problem. And Adam and James really seized on that. They, they really seized on this idea that there is a potential here to actually cre create a larger societal good by getting people off of deadly cigarettes onto a product that is less harmful. The problem was the way in which they originally marketed their, their product, Juul, 
was extremely irresponsible and ended up creating a whole new set of problems. Yeah, the, uh, the Washington Post, as always, I don't know who does their headlines, but they do them very well. Uh, their, their recent piece about Jewel says how two Stanford grads aimed for big tech glory and got big tobacco instead. Is that headline fair, Jewel? Did, uh, I guess that the, the ultra people thought that they were buying Silicon Valley or a bit of innovation from Silicon Valley, but did the two cultures eventually result in Altria uh, turning Jewel into a, a big tobacco company with a big tobacco mentality? Absolutely, in a way. So in 2018, December, when Altria invested $12.8 billion in Jewel, it became the single largest outside investor. So they didn't have control over the board, um, although they did say that they were ultimately going to get voting uh, power on that board. But what happened after Altria made the investment was that you saw a huge exodus of Altria employees and executives go over to Jewel. So the CEO, now CEO of Juul, is actually a former uh, high-level executive at Altria. And there are many, many other um, high-level people from the company that also went to Juul. So suddenly you saw Juul taking on more of the big tobacco kind of playbook and really trying to... Uh, use some of the same kind of sway and lobbying tactics um, uh, for Juul that they did with Big Tobacco over the years, which they're master. You're, you're very polite, Lauren. Um, is this really just dabbling in lies and propaganda? One story that caught my eye recently, Juul bought a medical journal for $51,000 um, and sat on headlines on this, Shades of Big Tobacco, how and why Juul bought an entire issue of a scientific journal. That's, that, that's straight out of, of Big Big Tobacco's playbook, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, for decades, the tobacco industry essentially bought scientists. They called them um, white coats. They would recruit high-level scientists from around the world, pay them a lot of money, and essentially have them spout their uh, whatever they wanted to in some sort of te technical journal or scientific journal to give the tobacco industry's philosophy and marketing ideas kind of the sheen of science. And so it was alarming when Jewel was shown to have paid for that journal. Um, and I think that at the time, Jewel is Jewel is at a crux right now. They are at a they are at a fork in the road, and their future is on the line. And they're desperate to get credibility for their product and, and to show that their product can actually save lives by switching smokers to their products. So yeah, I thought it was a very terrible move that Jewel made. I think it just <laughs> even just the the um, the the image of them doing that, I think, was very poorly executed. It's not just that uh, Big Tobacco um, had a habit of buying white coats, but also of politicians. Here's a headline I found about a Hawaii lawmaker who spent years obstructing vaping regulation. Uh, given how sensitive regulators are about vaping, to what extent has Joel... Um, copied that strategy of, of spending large amounts of money uh, on politics, uh, on lobbying? 
huge. They've invested a lot of money in lobbyists. They have dozens of lobbyists now. Um, they have successfully managed to um, create allies in Congress and in state houses. And so they absolutely are very involved in politics. The company, in fact, moved its headquarters from from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., which the entire industry realizes is the is the heartbeat of the industry right now, because regulators have the power to essentially make or break their product and their company. So they're very heavily involved in lobbying and um, 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 lobbying legislators and lawmakers. Um. Lauren, one of the, the most chilling aspects of the Jewel story and of, of, of your excellent book, The Devil's Playground, is the amount of money spent on marketing to children. Um, E-cigarettes were designed right from the beginning to appeal to adolescents, perhaps even pre-adolescents. Uh, we had Emily Oster on the show recently. Uh, She's a best-selling writer about advice to parents. I know there are some people who believe that e-cigarettes actually aren't bad for you. What advice would you give to parents, particularly of adolescents who, who, who make the argument, well, vaping's not so bad. It's certainly better than smoking uh, physical cigarettes. Well, it's a terrible habit for a teen to adopt. And I would advise any parent that sees any indication that their child is vaping to quickly intervene. The problem with vaping is that it's extremely addictive. Uh, it does, it's not like cigarettes. It's not as far as we know. Again, I think the biggest caveat here is we don't know the long-term health effects of vaping because vaping hasn't been around long enough for, the, for there to be long-term clinical studies. So the problem that we know of is that it's extremely addictive. When Juul launched, they launched their product with a 5% nicotine concentration. It was the most highly concentrated nicotine product on the market. One little tiny pod is equivalent to an entire pack of Marlboro cigarettes or any cigarette for that matter. So when a teen gets addicted to nicotine, their brains are not yet fully developed and they develop pathways in their brain that, that heighten the power of addiction and that can lead to longer lasting problems. Also, what we know is that smokers, 90, more than 98% of smokers began smoking before the age of 18, which means that they became hooked on nicotine when they were teenagers. So the idea that we now have a new generation of nicotine users is, is extremely um, terrible for public health. One, because we don't know the long-term effects, but two, because it can actually harm the young, the, the, the developing brain. So aside from the fact that your child now has a nicotine addiction that will cause them to impulsively seek out Juul or some other product multiple times a day, interfere with their lives, interfere with their brain development, it's a very bad habit for them to develop. And there's honestly no redeeming quality for a nicotine addiction. There's I don't know why I'm laughing here, Lauren, and I, I should really be crying. Um, your book talks about the way in which um, the dangers of Juul when it comes to adolescence was first revealed by uh, wealthy communities in Silicon Valley. But I'm, I'm wondering whether vaping, whether poorer communities, single parent communities, children from latchkey families... Uh, or latchkey without families, are they more vulnerable to not just the marketing of vaping, but also the 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 the, the, the technology? 
Well, certainly uh, children of families not of means often have other things going on in their lives and they might turn to something like nicotine to help combat stress or help them cope with whatever they're going through. The thing about Juul was that, and one of the reasons that there were these wealthy families that kind of intervened and caused a huge stir and a backlash really against Juul is because Juul is extremely expensive. Um, or it, When it launched, it was extremely expensive. It would cost almost $50 to buy a new device and to refill the pods. It was $25 or more. So this wasn't, it, it really was, that's not to say that kids of, of lesser means were not obtaining Juul because they were. In fact, I tell a story of a, of a young teen who got addicted to Juul and he ended up begging his mom to buy him Juul pods because he didn't have enough money. So, I mean, this it's a problem for teens, no matter what your socioeconomic background is. And, um, you know, the reason that these Silicon Valley parents got involved was because it was it was essentially flooding their schools. We had Shira Frankel, another Silicon Valley-based writer on the show. She has a very influential, popular new book out, An Ugly Truth About Facebook, and how Facebook knew exactly what it was doing and still does in terms of the dissemination of lies, the undermining of truth. Um, has Jewel been very active in promoting its propaganda in terms of its product on social media through networks like Facebook? Well, not anymore because they have largely pulled back. They're trying to regain their footing and so they can live for another day. So they've actually taken their advertising office so largely off of social media. But certainly when Jewel launched, that was one of the vectors for this product to basically spread across the country and into high schools and middle schools. It was all over social media, and they certainly used that as a way to make their own product go viral. It was on Instagram. It was on Twitter. It was all over Facebook. There were fan pages, Jewel fan pages that were developed by teens that would, you know, essentially evangelize how cool this product was. Jewel influencers, I'm guessing, probably being paid in yes. electronic cigarettes or other other yes. kinds of inducements. Yes, they paid influencers, they had parties where they would essentially distribute their product for free at raves, at art galleries on yachts, um, in bars, all of that type of thing. So, yeah, they had a they had an extremely sophisticated marketing strategy early on that involved social media, and I in fact think that social media played such a huge part of it and has gotten away with not bearing any real responsibility for many, many months while uh, this product this problem was developed Developing and the, the recklessness of Juul was sort of cascading across the country, social media companies refused to take down any of these objectionable posts about, you know, giving away free products. They repeatedly mm -hmm. tried to get eBay to take down the sale of the products because they weren't age gating and that type of thing. So I think the social media networks played a huge role in helping fuel this new epidemic of teen nicotine usage. You mentioned Washington, D.C. earlier, Lauren, of course, Companies like Facebook now becoming increasingly accountable in terms of platforms for the spreading of lies. A uh, nice piece this morning on uh, the new great conflict, great war uh, between Lena Khan, a uh, very prominent tech activist uh, and Biden appointee and, um, and, and big tech. Uh, in your view, how aggressively should 
uh, vaping and companies like Juul be regulated? Should they be more aggressively regulated than traditional cigarettes, physical cigarettes, analog cigarettes? Well, yes, I think that there needs to be regulations. I mean, already the FDA is moving toward a regulatory structure, um, but in certain states across the United States have already, you know, either banned or in cities and states banned vaping, banned sales, online sales of vape products, that type of thing. Um, and the federal government under Trump, in fact, had... But it, yeah, sorry to interrupt, Lauren, but it... it... No, to, to do a little bit of research for this, I, I, I went to the uh, Jewel site. It just asked me to confirm that I was over 18 or 21. It showed no, didn't require any proof. How effective is a lot of this, though? Well, I mean, I think that any there's ways around all of this. And, and this is kind of the, the crux of the problem is how are we going to treat this nicotine product? Should this be designed and sold as a recreational nicotine product where does anybody can have it or subject to age limitations? Or should it be deemed as more of a medical cessation product? And part of the problem is and that- What do you think? One or the other? Which one? I think that I mean part of the problem is that the regulatory structure is such that they have divided the medical category into the um, into one division of the CDA, CD, sorry FDA, and then tobacco products for another division of the FDA. So under the law, tobacco products are not really allowed to be called medical devices. If they were, it would allow regulators to really contain these products. They wouldn't be able to get into his hands as, of as many children and um, you know new nicotine users because it would be solely designed to be a cessation device. It would be solely for smokers who want to quit smoking. Jewel has Jewel has very carefully and intentionally uh, crafted their frame the framework. So they say we're not using this as a cessation. Jewel is not a cessation device. If they said that, they would automatically be regulated as a medical device. They've said that we're essentially just asking smokers to switch. By doing that, they've been able to avoid being regulated as a cessation product and they remain as a tobacco product. I think in the long run, it would be much more efficient and probably safe from a teen usage standpoint if it could be regulated as a cessation device. I think that you, would, you wouldn't have so much widespread access in gas stations and vape stores, but there is a huge vaping lobby out there, a lot of it that's backed by big tobacco, that basically says that that is taking away the freedoms of Americans to decide that they want to continue using nicotine. So it's 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 another version of the the anti-vaxxer argument essentially, is it? Well, it's it is couched sort of in the terms of freedom and the tobacco industry has long kind of affiliated itself with these kind of these groups, these pro-freedom groups and um, dating back to the 1990s. Surprise, surprise, Lauren. Recently we had a wonderful new book Losing Eden by the English uh, nature writer Lucy Jones, she writes about the, in her view at least, the association of, of drugs and alcohol with um, depression and uh, sort of an alienation from nature itself. Has there been any research on any kind of relationship between vaping and mental health, given particularly amongst adolescents the the crisis of mental health is, is something that we've dealt with a lot on this show recently. 
I don't know uh, of any research making that direct correlation, but as I mentioned earlier, nicotine is used for many things and has um, many effects in your body. It can cause you to uh, relax. It can cause you to feel alert. It can reduce stress. So it's not surprising that many teens might turn to nicotine as a way to cope with stress. And that's the problem is that they're, they're turning to a product that will get them addicted um, on, uh, on a substance that will be very hard to break uh, down the road. This is all very chilling. Finally, Lauren, the most chilling thing, of course, you're talking to me from Los Angeles. I'm in San Francisco. Are the fires now spreading in, uh, in California, the sort of the, the, the apocalyptic crisis of nature? Yesterday, we had the um, San Francisco Chronicle journalist, Lizzie Johnson. She wrote a book about paradise and it's burning up. How would you respond to a pro-vaping person who say, well, we're not necessarily idealizing electronic cigarettes, but from an environmental point of view, they're not a bad thing, particularly compared with, with cigarettes. And in terms of its impact on the environment, they're better than, um, the, than the physical version. Right. So comparing cigarettes to vaping is it's pretty easy to do. Um, uh, the, the deadly nature of cigarettes, the environmental harm caused by cigarettes, all of the those sort of terrible things linked to smoking, but it's a pretty low bar. So you could compare you could compare almost anything to a cigarette, and it would be better than a cigarette. So yeah, there are un, there's undeniably there are assets and sort of like I said earlier, public health benefits potentially to e-cigarettes. The problem is that there needs to be proper regulation in order to contain it so you don't create the next generation of nicotine addicts just solely to feed the company's bottom line, which is essentially what the tobacco industry is. Because if you think about it, as smokers die, and this is a calculus that the cigarette industry has realized forever, as smokers die, they lose their customers. So in order to have longevity, they need to recruit new customers. So there is research showing that some vapors end up going to cigarette smoking because they're already addicted to nicotine. The problem is we don't need a new generation of nicotine addicts. Like I said, earlier, there's no redeemable quality to using nicotine unless you're trying to get off of cigarette smoking. So I have a problem with the way that the company markets these products, especially to younger people, because the only reason they need to have the next generation is so that they continue feeding the company's bottom line. And I think that that's a dangerous mix. It certainly is a dangerous mix. Um, Laurenetta's new book, The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco, Jewel, and the Addiction of a New Generation is, is must-read for anyone who cares about this stuff, and I think most of us do. Um, it's also, I think, a very a good piece of evidence of the importance of critical independent journalism in terms of digging into these giant corporations. It's not just Silicon Valley companies, but big tech is still, uh, sorry, not big tech, big tobacco is still a big danger. So uh, Lauren, congratulations on the book. Um, what else? I know you're in Los Angeles at the moment where you live. Anything else that people should be reading in these strange times where we're not quite sure whether COVID is finished or not? 
Yeah, I mean, there's certainly so many new great business books that are out. You mentioned the Cult of We and the new Facebook book. Um, I uh, I think there's so much going on that it's great to just kind of dial back and read something that has a long history and that's beautifully written. And I recently finished this beautiful book called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Mm. It's about the the story of America's Great Migration, and it taps into a lot of the issues, um, you know, surrounding the murder of George. Floyd and race and gives us gives you a really foundational sort of understanding of why we are where we are today. Mm. Isabel uh, Wilkerson is someone we've been trying to get on the show recently. I'm sure we will at some point. Um, but um, but Lauren Etta, author of The Devil's Playbook, thank you so much. It was a really I, I appreciate your honesty. I uh, I, uh, I gave you some tough questions. You responded very well. Uh, I think you're very responsible in your reporting, not too dramatic, but sufficiently critical. And your new book, uh, The Devil's Playground, is, is really an important read and, and, and reflects a huge amount of legwork and intellectual work. Congratulations. Thank you so much. We'll Thank have you, you back on the show again to talk about big tobacco, big tech, and everything else that's wrong with uh, the 2020s. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.